0: 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Paul was traveling around the Roman Empire, claiming that a Jewish man named Jesus of Lazarus was the world's true Lord. The message was was crazy to the first hearer because essentially it was a message that this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Roman authority and rose in power and glory on the third day. Now, as crazy as that message might have sounded to its first hearers... The crazier thing was that people would hear this message, a message called good news, and things would just happen. Like there'd be miracles. People would believe. People's lives were transformed. People got changed from the inside out and their lives were radically different. And this man, Paul, would go around the entire Roman Empire preaching this message. And sometimes it was well-received uh, depending upon the city and the location. Sometimes it wasn't. He might end up uh, getting beat up and dragged out of the city and told to never come back. One of the cities that he visited was a Roman colony called Philippi. And in the book of Acts, it records three encounters that this Paul has with three individuals as he is proclaiming the gospel. This is how the book of Acts records the first three encounters that Paul has with three individuals in the book of Acts. And on the Sabbath day, we, the we is a little bit confusing because you don't know the we, but it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. We're outside the gate to the riverside where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now already, just like within this, this little section, we are told a lot about this city called Philippi because we're told that Paul went to the gate by the riverside to hopefully find a place of prayer. Now, if you know anything about this guy Paul, you know that whenever he goes to a new location, he first and foremost always goes to a synagogue. His mission is to show up in the city and find a synagogue. And there's a reason for that. Because he is claiming that this one who he says is the, lo- the world's true Lord is the fulfillment of all the Hebrew scriptures, So he would find a Jewish synagogue and then reason from their scriptures that the crucified Jesus was indeed the world's true Lord. But in this sense, in this case, he doesn't find a synagogue, and this is likely because there isn't a synagogue in Philippi. It's a Roman colony, has a very small Jewish population. One of the historical details that you need to be aware of is that for a synagogue to be established in a new community, you had to have 10 men. And the reason why for 10 men is those are representative of 10 families. So it's like in order to, to plant a new synagogue, you at least need 10 families to begin that project. So likely, what is taking place historically at this point is that there is not enough Jewish families here to even have a synagogue. So some of the faithful believers, and maybe some God-fearers, what, what we call people who, who they're not Jewish at this time, but they have this growing kind of seeking out attitude towards the God of the scriptures, uh, they would maybe re- meet down by the, the river, just to pray, because there's not even enough, which says that Philippi is is almost spiritually dead. It's nearly spiritually dead, but it's not completely spiritually dead, because there's this small remnant of faithful people that go down to pray. And Paul meets them, and immediately we're introduced to a woman named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Now just like we found out a lot about Philippi from a brief sentence, so we find out a lot about this woman named Lydia. We know where she's from, Thyatira. We know that she's a seller of purple goods, which means she's pretty much with certainty a wealthy businesswoman, an extremely wealthy businesswoman. There are two types of purple dyes in the ancient world, and one was very expensive, one was not as expensive, but either way, if you were a seller of either one, you were making decent money. And we know this because in a moment, we're going to tell she has her own household. And so they're introduced to this, this woman, Lydia. She's a rich, wealthy businesswoman who sells these purple goods, things with purple dye, And she's a worshiper of God. And it's like God had arranged everything perfectly because she just went down to this location where she regularly prays and then she meets this Paul who's just traveling there and boom, the last line. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. The Lord met her. And after, she was baptized and her whole household as well. This is where you get more information. She's she's a free woman. Many people in the Roman Empire were slaves. She is a free woman. She's wealthy. She has her own household. She invites the apostles to come back, and everyone's getting baptized. And after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed against us. So, so far, so good. Paul shows up in Philippi, finds a faithful remnant, preaches the gospel, and things happen. Because when the good news is proclaimed, things just seem to happen. Immediately, we're introduced to another individual. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this girl that we're introduced to is like in the complete opposite situation than Lydia. Lydia is free. She's wealthy. She has her own business. This this young girl, this girl is a slave. And she's 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 a slave in two ways. She has earthly masters and spiritual masters. There are people who own her physically as a slave in the Roman Empire, and then there is these spiritual overlords, demons working in her. And it says that she practices fortune telling, and through that activity, she's making who money, not her self money, but the people that claim her. It was a horrible situation. It was a horrible situation. Two ways uh, the Bible allows you to look at things like this. When we look at things like when it says well, fortune telling, we all know that that's not not real, right? And what the Bible does is it has one one way of looking at it, one category, and it says that hey, look, there are people in this world who claim to practice fortune telling, tell the future, have some type of psychic powers, and all of this stuff, and you just need to know that like there's fakes, frauds, and phonies. So like just know, and and that happened, and it happens now, right? There are countless fakes, frauds, and phonies that are claiming to have some type of magical power, and it's, it's just a front to bring in vulnerable, vulnerable people and take their money. So the Bible has the category for that. It also has a category, though, that says that there is a real supernatural spiritual realm. There are evil spirits at work in the world. And although they can't tell the future, they might have special insight into things and reveal them in some insidious way to manipulate and to lie and to deceive. And so in this case, this girl is demonized. There is an evil spiritual power at work in her life. And she's in a horrible condition. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now this is just straight up one of the more weird verses in the Bible. Because if you pay attention to the details, let me, let me kind of go over them. There's this girl who's de- demon-possessed, and she, she's in this horrible situation where her, the people who own her are making money off of her, and the demon speaks out against Paul and his companions, and Paul doesn't do anything. And then after many days of this demon sort of taunting Paul the apostle, he's just like, okay, I've had enough, get out of her. Which is, like, like, why wouldn't he have done this earlier? Like, did you, not, did you not care? This girl's in a horrible situation. Now, one of the things that we've been reviewing, especially from our Bizarre Bible series, is that the Bible oftentimes will give you three or four verses that's describing a whole complex situation. We don't know everything that's going on here. All we know is that for whatever reason, Paul didn't try to immediately cast out this demon. It happened later. And if you go into the historical setting, there's a bunch of reasons why. By doing that, he, might, he could cause this girl greater harm. Who's she making money for? How might they treat her? What type of chaos might ensue for them or for her? So we don't know all the thoughts that are going in Paul's mind. Maybe he neglected what he should have done. Maybe he was doing the right thing and waiting for the opportune moment. All the text tells us is that he saw fit not to cast this demon out immediately, but then after, a, we don't know how many days, uh, he becomes greatly annoyed very good biblical phrase he becomes greatly annoyed and then he commands the spirit to come out now just a little glimpse in the historical setting you could see the type of chaos that comes out of this that's what happens next but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone so do these do these men care about this girl they do not care Their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So chaos ensues. Chaos is unleashed. Now, notice the accusation. The, 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 the people aren't saying, oh, Paul and his companions, they're, they're, they're preaching the gospel, or they, they, they took our way of ma- earning money. They took our way of making money. Their accusation is what? 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. Their accusation is they are teaching and preaching things that break the way of Rome the rules and customs of Rome. Remember, Philippi, the city, is a Roman colony. And so the accusation is you're not on the way of Rome. This is something fundamentally different. And what's the effect of that accusation? Well, the crowds gather and they attack them. And see, this is where you have like a giant story compressed. All you get is they attack them. Well, what does that mean? What type of harm was done? It just moves from that and then goes to the magistrates. The magistrates tear their garments, and then after that, it moves immediately to this order, beat them with rods. Now again, um, this is 2000 years ago. When the Bible just says, beat them with rods, you have to, you have to stop. This isn't some little thing you, you get hit with a small stick a couple times. This is, this is torture. This is meant to break a man. They are beaten with rods by the order of the civil magistrates. This is unbearable pain, again and again and again and again. It's meant to break you. And so after they're beaten with rods, we're, we're introduced to the third character in this story. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. A lot going on here as well. Um, Emphasis, they inflicted many blows. And then after, there's an order given to this third character, the jailer. And they tell the jailer, "Keep, keep them safe. Like, we, we roughed them up, we beat them up, we beat them with rods, now put them safely in the prison. And this is really easy to miss, and we don't know the exact motivations, of course, of the jailer, but the text clues you into some things, because 24 says, having received the order to keep them safe, he put them in the inner prison. Uh, the inner prison is a technical term referring to, like, the worst innermost part of the prison. It is dark, it is wet. The smell would be unthinkable, unfathomable. There would be much uh, occasion for disease and infection, especially if your body is filled with open wounds from being beaten and attacked and hit with rods. Then it says, on top of that, this jailer puts their feet in the stocks. So at minimum, this is just a way to keep you locked, being still, but oftentimes you're aware stocks are used to put people in uncomfortable, torturous positions. So this jailer might be sort of like adding to their affliction and suffering. You know, and imagine you've been beaten with rods and now you're locked in some uncomfortable position. This jailer is most likely an ex-Roman soldier. Uh, Philippi, as we've mentioned, is a Roman colony. And Rome had a strategy where when their soldiers would be set for retirement, they would give them land and opportunity in Philippi. And so this place is filled with ex-Roman soldiers. They go into retirement and this is what Rome gives them. And so they'd have them fill positions like this. We know from the historical records that like this is the position that you're retiring from from fighting, you're gonna be a Roman jailer in our our colony. So he's likely an ex-Roman soldier. Can't be certain, but likely. And he puts them in the stocks. So imagine for a moment, you're where Paul is. He's got his friend Silas with him. You've been beaten. Then you get attacked by a mob. Then you get beaten with rods, till like you're broken, you know what I mean? It's, it's It's meant to take you out. Then you get thrown in the worst part of the prison, and then you're put in the stocks. So what do you do when you're suffering at that level? Thrown away in prison... Stuck in the stocks, beaten, tortured, afflicted and suffering. What do he do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, that should be the end of the story. It's like, oh, a miracle. We're free. When the jailer woke, you know, the guy who threw him in the stocks and put him in the inner prison, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, we don't know all the motivations of what's going on with this Roman jailer, but he sees what happens and he's going to kill himself. Maybe because the punishment of letting prisoners go was was the death penalty. Maybe because everyone was just let free, the rational kind of explanation of the Roman magistrates would be, dude, you're a part of this. These people were preaching and teaching in ways that were against the customs of Rome. You freed them. You are a part of this treasonous act. Therefore, you will face the consequence of someone who who commits treason. Or maybe just the shame of failure before his family or community or before Rome was enough. But either way, this man is at the bottom. And he's ready to fall on his sword. And he hears a voice, stop. We're here. We're here. It's going to be okay. And then, of course, he asks, like, okay, what, what must I do to be saved? Now, if you grew up in church, usually when you heard this this passage taught, when you hear the Roman jailer say like, what must I do to be saved? You automatically think what he means by what must I do to be saved is what you mean if you were to ask the question, what does someone have to do to be saved? But this guy isn't like a Jewish man who faithfully goes to synagogue. He's not a person who has influenced by, who's been influenced by the Christians. So his question isn't like, I know I'm a sinner, Um, And how might this person you're talking about, Jesus, be the one who can forget? Likely, the first, his thing is, I'm in trouble. What do I have to do? Now, the answer that Paul gives is the answer to the big question. And in the answer to the big question, he gets the little question answered as well. What must I do to be saved? I'm in trouble. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So he asked, what am I gotta do? Almost like, I just don't wanna be in trouble. Well, There's good news and there's bad news. There's even greater trouble you're in. But we have even greater news. Trust us on this and we'll see you through because we're gonna go back. You're not gonna get in trouble. And then the man is baptized, his household is baptized. He started off by putting them in the stocks and then what is he doing around the dinner table? Washing their wounds. And so, In our introduction to Philippi, you get introduced to three people that are like way different. There is a a girl who who is demon-possessed. You have this wealthy businesswoman. You have a Roman jailer. And from these three converts and probably several others, you get the first church in Philippi. Now think about that for a moment. Think about this. Is that the team you start a church with? Like, for those of you who are into sports, like, you know, team dynamics matter, right? You can have three superstars on a team, but if they don't get along, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. You need good team dynamics. So it's like, man, let's start. We're going to, Paul's a Jewish man. And so maybe a part of that Jewish minority, there is a few Jewish converts. uh, There's some other Gentiles, some people with different stories. But then there's a businesswoman, a Roman jailer. Like, we're going to get together. We're going to share a meal together, sing some some songs. And it's like, what if you were a Jewish person, Jewish man, and you walk in and you see an ex-Roman soldier? You going to eat bread with that dude? Or what about the, the poor oppressed slave girl? What does she think of Lydia? Maybe she's always looked up to Lydia. She used to dream about maybe one day I'll be free and I'll be rich like that woman by the river. Or maybe she hated her because she represents the rich, and the rich are the very people who have always taken advantage of her. So you have all these different people from like different walks of life with different stories, and Paul says that now they are gonna unify around the person and work of Jesus. Like the first month of those church, church probably would have been pretty wild. Pretty wild. But he says you're gonna do it. And Paul loves these people, He loves this church. Ten years after these individuals come to Christ and ten years after this church in Philippi has begun, Paul would write them a letter. And he writes them a letter because he hears about many dark influences and threats coming into the church He hears that there's disunity in the church. He hears threats about false doctrine and false teaching. He is very much aware of the threats of persecution. And so, 10 years after this church is planted, Paul sees these external and internal forces coming together in unity to destroy the church that he begun in Philippi. And to make everything worse, 10 years after he plants this church, Paul once again is in prison, he's in chains under Rome. And so 10 years later, with threats of disunity, false doctrine, bad teaching, persecution, and Paul's own imprisonment, Paul writes a letter. Because that's probably the only thing you could do while you're in prison. And he writes a letter to the Christians at Philippi. The letter is what we call the book of Philippians. The letter of Philippians or the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. So when you're in prison, and this church who, which you love is being threatened at all sides, what do you write? Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy, Timothy still with Paul, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like what do you, like, what do, you do when the threats are everywhere, you're in prison? You don't even know if you're going to be alive in a month, in a year. What does Paul do? He says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for peace here in in Greek is erene, but of course Paul is Jewish, so he doesn't have the Greek concept of peace in mind. Even though it's the Greek word, he has the Jewish concept of peace. Shalom. This would be what a Jewish man would, would tell people whom he cared about, shalom to you, grace to you, peace to you. It's very difficult to to speak of shalom when you're rotting away in a prison cell, right? No, peace. God's peace, God's shalom to you. And he writes this letter to uh, the saints. It's the Greek word agios, it's like the holy ones, the people of the church. And then he gives two leadership categories, overseers and deacons. Overseers is the word episkopos. It's a great translation. Me, the per, the like, leadership, the people who are overseeing the work of the ministry. And deacon is, is an, uh, kind of a, not a used, often used words, word used in English. It's diakonos and it means minister. So to the, to the leadership and the ministers and to all the saints, all the Christians who are there in Philippi, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God you stop right there. Are you thanking God in these mo- like, remember where he's at, remember what he's been through, remember the threats against the church. Paul's thankful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is probably one of, like, for me personally, and I think for many, top 10 most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. And if it's not yet for you, maybe by the end of today it will be. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts And sometimes in life, you will feel like throwing in the towel. Like whatever begun in your life, it's not going to come to fruition. It's not going to be completed. You may feel like a failure, a loser, like you can't get your act together. When God starts, he finishes. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to finish it. Now, that's true at like the individual level. So Paul is writing to he says to the saints, to the, to the Christians that are there. So it applies to the individual, but it certainly also applies to the church, like the corporate church. Paul is saying, like, I know there's all these threats, well, but what, we got, what God began in Philippi, he's gonna, he's gonna see this through. He's gonna see this through. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Are you kind of getting a glimpse of how much Paul loved the Christians at Philippi? If you've been a Christian a long time and you've read through the Bible, you know that not all of Paul's letters sound like this. Sometimes he's like, oh my gosh, you guys. I wish I had something nice to say, but I have nothing nice to say about you. It's like, okay. But do you feel this? This is like, I love you. Every time I think about you, I'm filled with joy. And maybe he has the, the Roman soldier in his mind or Lydia or some of the other. He has these individuals in mind. Every time I think about you, you worked for Rome. You were a murderer. You were about to to kill yourself. And then I remember when we came home and we we ministered to your family and everyone was baptized. And I remember the joy that we had around the table, joy in our sufferings, joy in our afflictions. And so you get this sense that Paul has a deep, deep love for the Christians in Philippi. And the introduction ends with this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 9 has an important idea. It's my prayer that your love, so love may abound. Paul wants there to be an increase of love. I want love to abound, but it's also to abound more and more with what? Knowledge and all discernment. Um, we say this often, but depending upon your temperament, like as you study the scriptures and you go to church, like some of, the, like, some of you, it really becomes easy for your affections to be stirred, and some of you, are, you're more inclined to like, you no, know, the way I love God is with my mind, I... I study and I learn new things and I exercise discernment, and both are good. And what Paul is saying is that there's a Christian way to bring the whole of our being into submission. So we love God with our affections and our emotions, but we also want to grow in wisdom and knowledge and discernment. All of these activities are for the Christian. We are to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, the sum total of our being. So let's review just for a moment. There's all these threats, going to Philippi. False doctrine, disunity, external threats, internal threats, Paul himself is very familiar with the threat of persecution. He's in prison as he writes this letter. Nevertheless, just in that introduction, what were were some of the key themes? What were some of the emotions that came up? Were they dark? Were they ones of fear and anxiety or were they ones of joy and gratefulness? and longing to see those people who you love, and words of hope, he who began a good work will finish it. So how does, how does Paul, like this guy, like how does, he, how does he do that? All the while he's in prison and in chains. And it's because even though he's in chains and in prisons, Paul, prison, Paul knows he's in Christ. So both things are true. He's in chains, but he's in Christ. And knowing that he's in Christ changes everything. Oftentimes, uh, Christians and kind of our, our, our kind of church culture in the modern world emphasize the fact that Jesus lives in you, Christ lives in you, which is true. We talked about that a lot in the last series, Temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, so yes, Christ is in us, but the Bible also talks a lot about being in Christ. Christ in you and you in him. The church, his people are his body, his bride. You are the family members of God's household. You've been brought into the household of God. You are in Christ. That changes who you are. That changes your direction, your aim, your motivations in life. You are in Christ. You belong to Him. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to earthly powers. You don't belong to dark spiritual powers. You belong to Christ. You are in Him and He in you. And because of that, even if you're in chains, you can say grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes everything. changes everything. Now, we're gonna spend um, a couple months going through this letter that Paul writes to these Christians in Philippi. Be here for a couple months going through it verse by verse. I wanna show you, though, briefly where we got uh, the title from. We titled it The Book of Philippians. That's the obvious one, because we're not very creative. I'm not not creative. We have creative people. What are you going to name this series, Isaac? What's it called in the Bible? It's good enough for me. Okay. But the subtitle, Hold Fast, Stand Firm, Walk Worthy, are all kind of brief snippets from various sections in this. Let me show this to you. Uh, 214, Do All Things Without Grumbling or Disputing. Again, when we get there, pretty profound for Paul to be saying this, right? Like, just be honest. Sometimes we skip a meal and we're grouchy and complaining. (laughs) Paul in prison, do not do all these things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul tells the Christians, you hold fast to the word of life. Another verse, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whenever, whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Christians, we don't belong to this world, and we ought to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the third one, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so you get this emphasis of holding fast, standing firm, and walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says these words in very dark times. Threats. Of persecution, he's in prison, internal threats, threats from the inside like disunity and infighting, threats from the outside like false doctrine creeping in. And he says all of this and he says, hey look Christian, with all of this horrible stuff going on, hold fast, stand firm, walk worthy. That's what Christians do. We don't belong to this world. Hold fast, stand firm, walk worthy. So Paul said these in very dark times. Um, I woke yesterday morning to very dark news that you all uh, awoke to. It was, I, I woke up, and the uh, first headline I saw was um, Israel attacked, And then the next headline I saw, Israel says, we're at war. Um, and although there's been tons of fighting, you just need to know that I, I think that the last official time, uh, official war was declared in that sense... Israel's 1973. Um, And then you were bombarded, right, with images and videos, depending upon what you were watching, what social media outlets you were on, Um, and you just see like evil, evil, just horrible thing, horrible violence. And you're reminded how how evil we can we can be, right? As a people, as human beings. Um, and that then is not like just the only thing. See, see, we're 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 only human, so we can only process like a few things at a whole time. But you're seeing war being declared, and you're seeing death and violence and evil. But that's already built upon other wars that are going on in the war in the world, and other violence. A few weeks ago, Sam was up here praying about the stuff that's occurring in Haiti. It's like an apocalyptic like aftermath war zone. It's like just evil upon evil and suffering upon suffering. And that's just all like external stuff. That's not the stuff that's going on in your own personal life, right? Like fears and anxieties that you have, troubles that you have, economic uncertainty that you might have, uh, uncertainty about your own health, about a doctor's appointment coming up, and it's like all these things compounding. You're worrying about your children and your grandchildren. There's like all this stuff that's just everywhere. And the, 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 I mean, that's bad news, but the good news of it is we don't find ourselves in any place that Christians have not historically found themselves. It was a very dark time when Paul wrote this letter, and he's in prison, possibly awaiting death. And he says, what do you do, Christian? How do you behave in a world that you don't belong to? You hold fast, you stand firm, and you walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are lights in a dark world. This is not your home. You are lights in a very dark world. And so this, this book is like... It's one that's super encouraging and uplifting, and you almost forget, like, (laughs) how bad it was in the midst of all of that. But nevertheless, this is what we do. We're Christians. We're bought with a price. Someone died to bring us into the fold. So we hold fast, we stand firm, and we walk worthy. And so we're going to transition into communion in a moment, but before we do, I do want to pray for what's just just broken out in the last 48 hours, and just, I just want to pray briefly because it's like, you you guys know, you see the you see all the stuff and it's like, how do you even begin to pray for stuff that's so much bigger than you could ever be? You know, like all the problems in the world, you, <laughs> you're like, what, <laughs> where do you even pray? Uh, and so luckily the scriptures give us the Psalms and like the Lord's Prayer that teach us how to pray for these things. So, um, Let's briefly pray. Uh, but Father, we ask that you uh, protect the innocent. Please protect the innocent. And we pray uh, that you bring repentance to evil doers. We pray that they would be drawn to repentance. We're reading about a guy named Paul who used to kill Christians. And you gave us the gift of Paul the Apostle as an example to the world. The guy who kills Christians could be the planter of churches and we should never doubt what you can do. And so we pray that you would bring repentance to evildoers. And then we also pray what you give us in the book of Romans It says we are not to to seek out our own vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God. Because when repentance does not occur, when repentance does not happen, Christians are to leave room, it says, leave room for the wrath of God. Why? Because you say, vengeance is mine. And so in the midst of of, of dark times, we trust you. We wanna see repentance. We wanna see the protection of the innocent. And more than anything, as always, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Now, with all of that, like how can Paul be so confident? How, how can Paul be so confident? I want to close by returning to this verse from verse six. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Like let, let that hit for a moment. Again, things are bad. Paul's in prison. I am confident. I am sure of this. Paul says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God doesn't, he doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't give up on his church. He doesn't give up on the world. And so no matter where you're at today, you, like you might be that person who's feeling like, just, I'm ready to throw in the towel. You don't throw in the towel because God doesn't throw in the towel. You commit, hold fast, stand firm, walk worthy. You've been called, you've been purchased, you've been brought in, you are in Christ. You are not of this world, this is not your home. And so Paul can be confident, not because he's confident in his missionary skills or his preaching skills, he's confident because God is doing something and when God God starts something, he sees it through. And so to us, to the church and to the world, we can say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we take communion.